the piece that I'm encouraged by is that through the last 30 years, with every new challenge, whether it's fentanyl, whether it's hepatitis C, whether it's HIV, the harm reduction community has rolled up its sleeves and stepped up and come up with brilliant ideas that people had not thought of before. Um, and that's the wellspring that we can tap into now in this moment. You're listening to Narcotica, a podcast giving you the straight dope about drugs and the people who use them. We're living in uncertain times. In order to get through this and stay healthy and safe, everyone needs to do their part. This is a time for solidarity, not panic. People with substance use disorders and those experiencing incarceration and homelessness, which disparately impact people who use drugs, are at heightened risk during a pandemic like the one we're in. This is Zachary Siegel, and you're listening to Narcotica. With me today is Troy Farah from his uh, quarantine in California. What's up, Troy? Hey, how's it going? Uh, our guest today is Daniel Raymond, the policy director of the Harm Reduction Coalition. He's here to talk about the unique risks facing people who use drugs right now, but also why there's no time for despair. There's a lot of wisdom to gain from the harm reduction community with their astute ability to navigate multiple risks and grassroots community health pr principles. Um, the decades of fighting back epidemics, overdoses, and infectious diseases no doubt apply to today. We're going to post a ton of links to resources on this episode, so check out the show notes for useful info. Um, things are changing pretty rapidly, so a lot of this info that on this episode may become obsolete quickly. Um, for posterity, this episode is being recorded on March 17th at 12 p.m. Uh, Eastern Time, and we're not editing it. We're just uploading it with all the glitches and ums and awkward pauses so we can get this info out there as fast as possible. So pardon the dust, and if this info is helpful to you, pass it on. Um, Daniel, welcome to the show. Thanks, Troy. Thanks, Zach. Uh, really glad that you guys are doing this. This is a time for people to really connect. And there's so many questions circulating out there, and we're all trying to figure them out together. Yeah, and that's what I think this show is really going to be, sort of a, a public service PSA kind of thing. And we we brought you on specifically because of this, you know, beautiful post that you wrote on, on Medium about sort of all of the the, the wisdom and uh, you know, sort of collective knowledge that the harm reduction community has has gained and, and practiced over the last you know three decades, and obviously, uh, right now with overdoses uh, in the and currently with hepatitis C and HIV, that you know fighting back epidemics and viruses and diseases is literally how harm reduction was born, right? So can you sort of walk us through a little bit of, uh, you know, the the post, which we'll link to, and why you felt, uh, you know, like you had to write that right now? Sure, Zach. I had the benefit of not being quarantined last week. And I think that if the timing had been a little different, we would have made different choices. But we had planned a convening for grantees of our HEP Connect initiative, which is meant to advance harm reduction and hepatitis C prevention for people who use drugs in five states, Indiana, Kentucky, 
North Carolina, Tennessee, and West Virginia. And so we were meeting in Raleigh, North Carolina last week with our grantees uh, as part of what had been a routine, uh, bringing people together, networking, sharing information, technical assistance. Um, and this was at a moment where public attention to COVID-19 was really amping up in in ways that were surfacing a lot of questions, questions about about vulnerability, questions about strategy, about navigating social distancing. And I was uh, talking with one of my friends, Louise Vincent, from the North Carolina Urban Survivors Union, who was relaying some of the things that she was thinking about, she was hearing about, people were talking about, and it was it was not surprisingly uh, a lot of complex feelings that uh, sense of uh, frustration about this government-wide and society-wide mobilization around this new viral threat that we haven't seen at that scale for overdose. So what does that mean about what we're collectively willing to mobilize around and what we're not. But also a lot of really serious questions about how we're gonna get each other and get our people through this situation. And so I found myself thinking about this as a time for us to really tap into our values and our strengths as a community to serve as our compass for how we work through this, that there felt like a very real risk, not just for people who use drugs and other groups like uh, people engaged in sex work, people who are homeless, uh, that there's a very real risk of succumbing to the paralysis of panic or futility or despair, despite what I think we know in our bones that, that we've been here before. Maybe not this exact moment, but we've been through these kinds of struggles for collective survival. And what have we learned along the way that we can keep tapping into as we're building out our own collective resilience and trying to navigate this together? So that was really the impetus for my blog post, as well as for me, it was really helpful to sit down and in a journaling kind of way, sort through my own feelings and emotions and uncertainties around this and just try to put this on paper and see if it spoke to other people. So a lot of people are worried about um, maintaining access to their medications. Um, Walgreens announced that they would ease restrictions on 30-day limits for maintenance medications, though when they say maintenance, they're talking about all monthly ongoing prescriptions and not methadone or buprenorphine in particular. Uh, can we discuss, um, you know, people who are trying to refill the uh, you know, opioid agonist therapy medications early to keep a steady supply and sort of the complicated legal landscape of people being able to take home drugs like methadone? Yeah, this is an issue that's rapidly evolving. So I'm going to share my understanding of, of where we are in this moment. Uh, so as of a few days ago, SAMHSA had not moved as fast as I think a lot of us wanted to see to really meet the seriousness of this moment where we're sending these mixed messages around social distancing and limit uh, people congregating in the same environment with the uh, imperative of these 
programs that require daily dosing and can be very restrictive in terms of take-homes. So over the last 24 hours, SAMHSA's made a huge U-turn um, and said, basically for any state that's already declared a state of emergency, which my understanding is that I believe that that's every state in D.C. currently, that they can allow for 28-day take-homes uh, without applying for clinic-specific waivers um, for all stable patients and 14 days for less stable patients. So I think that that's, uh, that's a huge thing. The programs are regulated at the federal level by Samson DEA, at the state level by the state opioid treatment authorities, and then governed by their local operators. Some of these are nonprofits, some of these are for profit. So I think that it's probably safe to say that this isn't just a case of SAMHSA waving their magic wand, that there needs to be some collective state action and then program level action. There may need to be some advocacy around that, but we should continue to be spreading the message and pushing for the norm of uh, long take-homes um, for, for methadone. Uh, the situation for your buprenorphine is... Uh, by design, a little more flexible because it's less heavily regulated, but it's not unregulated. And I think that the there's a lot of advocacy amongst uh, people in addiction medicine for making sure that people have continuity, making sure that they have uh, access to refills. And the issue that's, I, I think, today coming up for people is uh, for people newly starting buprenorphine. If this is a moment where we can expect a number of uh, supply disruptions uh, for people who are dependent on opioids, uh, street opioids like heroin, then this is going to be a time where we would hope that demand for buprenorphine uh, expands exponentially and that we want to make sure that our systems and providers are prepared to initiate new people on buprenorphine. There's a lot of good guidance for how to do that. Uh, the traditional model is observed induction of initial dosing, uh, but there's good guidance that that's actually not necessary, that people can induce at home. The question is, how do you get that initial prescription um, do you need to go to a clinic in person? Can that be done remotely by telemedicine? Um, and so there's some ambiguity around that right now. It seems, according to my reading, that DEA is signaling that under the federal emergency that's been declared, there may be some latitude to do that, but that's still a rapidly evolving situation. But I think the big opportunity here is to mobilize the broader healthcare sector to be prepared to do as many uh, buprenorphine starts as possible because in the same way that uh, people are stocking up on food, on, on, uh, on medicine and all of that, that I think that people who are opioid dependent, who are not sure how well they're going to be able to navigate accessing drugs from street markets. Uh, preparedness may look like uh, starting on buprenorphine uh, for maintenance and stability. Yeah, I've definitely 
Well, thanks first for outlining all that. I think there's probably a lot of sort of refill anxiety going on out there. And uh, my sort of hunch was that it would be tougher for people on methadone to to deal with this. And as I've done some reporting yesterday and and a bit this morning, it does seem like people trying to get, um, you know, early refills on buprenorphine are experiencing some trouble. Like when Troy mentioned that, you know, Walgreens and Blue Cross put out statements saying that they're going to like waive 30 day limits and things like that. Like, you know, that when they write that kind of thing, it doesn't really apply to controlled substances. And pharmacists are, you know, taking uh, their cues from, uh, you know, the internal companies and everything like that. And and I get the sense that um, there's definitely sort of a, a business as usual kind of vibe about controlled substances that like there's no need to refill these early. So I think it's just going to be like a sort of anxious time around this kind of thing and um and also uh so brooke feldman on on twitter definitely follow her she posted a uh, an information page for covid19 under uh dea's department of diversion control diversion control division right and so yeah it, it does seem like for for telemedicine that the initial appointment i'm not sure can be done remotely so i think that sort of where things stand with that. Yeah, the DEA diversion page was uh, just updated maybe an hour ago. So I I agree that this could be something to check in about early and often. And I think uh, there's some understandable frustration that uh, the federal agencies have not uh, been as loud and clear uh, about sending the signals that we're looking for in this moment. Um, that was the subject of a piece that came out this morning in STAT uh, that Sarah Wakeman was one of the authors for about some of the downstream consequences that we've allowed and maintained at various levels uh, these tight regulations on controlled substances, both pain medications as well as treatments for opioid use disorder in ways that do not serve us well. And some of those are about federal regulations. Some of those are about prior authorization requirements uh, that many states have been addressing on a case-by-case basis that you would like to think that you get your prescription, you show up at the pharmacy, and you walk out with the medication that you need. But depending on your insurance and depending on state policies and regulations, as well as insurer provider policies. Uh, Prior authorization may mean that the pharmacist uh, checks in with their insurer. The insurer says, well, we haven't authorized this yet, so we're going to have to hear from the prescriber uh, who's going to need to fill out forms and jump through hoops and actively advocate for this patient. And that's not the way to respond in a crisis. And if that's not the way to respond in a crisis, why have we set these systems up in the first place? Why are we letting the narrative that the priority always has to be diversion control override the broader health and public health needs that we've been confronting already through the overdose epidemic and are only going to be exacerbated in this moment. Yeah, I I really feel like, and I think this has been mentioned broadly about the coronavirus, how all these sort of uh, rules and uh, how they're how so many absurd rules in our society 
Like, they can be so clearly bent and broken during a, a crisis like the one we're in. And, and like you're saying, Daniel, it really makes us think about why were they there in the first place? <laughs> like, I'm just thinking broadly, like, why why limit uh, liquids and gels on airplanes to, to you know, 3.4 ounces? Because I think airplanes waived that because people had big bottles of hand sanitizer and they're like, okay, you can go on the plane. Like, all these, all these little sort of micro uh, rules and... Uh, are like being sort of put away because of the response and the the public health need that that this kind of uh, pandemic uh, demands. And so I think yeah, what like this crisis really like reveals how all these rules that that we have to follow are just like why are they there in the first place? <laughs> Yeah, you may have seen that uh, Amy Kopsinski and Greg Gonzalez had a piece in the Boston Review, Alone Against the Virus, highlighting how the healthcare system and the broader context of austerity politics that have eroded various aspects of the social safety net in the United States have left us in this position of heightened vulnerability that is poised to push a lot of people into harm's way. Uh, We're seeing this with calls around decarceration right now, that jails are a perfect setting for COVID-19 and potentially other infectious diseases to spread rapidly. So if this is an unusual situation, should not should we not be uh, making changes to not arrest people, especially for low-level charges, and to release people back out into the community uh, to offer them greater protection? And if we find that acceptable, then what does that say about the stories that we've told ourselves that we've had to keep people locked up, we've had to sustain mass incarceration because otherwise the public isn't safe? Yeah, and it, and I think it's worth noting that uh, there was a news item today uh, that Iran released something like 85,000 prisoners. Um, you know, we don't need to keep all these people locked up. Um, it's, it, it, it's now that the coronavirus is making it apparent that this is a health risk, it's kind of like exposing so many fallacies in our criminal justice system. Can we talk about about how people who use drugs are kind of a, there are some unique risks of coronavirus. Um, Sarah Ziegenhorn, I hope we're saying her name right, uh, the executive director and founder of Iowa Harm Reduction Coalition, she tweeted, our drop-in center is usually starting to get busy this time of year as the weather gets warmer but we've had strangely strangely low number of clients coming in and few delivery requests. What this means, people are either getting safe drug use supplies from friends or reusing. She also tweeted, many are reporting that trap houses are more crowded than usual, with lots of people trying to find spaces where they can camp out or set up shop. Others are reporting that more people are moving outside into the woods to camp as a way to get some distance from others. I It... it it does seem like this is uh, the coronavirus is creating some um, extra opportunity for people who use drugs to become exposed. Yeah, I think it's a complex situation that we're hearing reports of uh, programs considering closing down, shortening hours, changing their practices. And I think that this is a message that we're trying to figure out how to get out, uh, both to programs, but also to public health officials, that uh, that 
these may seem like extraordinary circumstances, but uh, continued stability of access to certain service program supplies and naloxone is going to be essential. Uh, that that we cannot expect that things like hepatitis C transmission or overdose are going to take a break during this period. And if people don't have the same level of access to supplies, the practices that they've adopted to take responsibility for protecting themselves and their communities are no longer going to be available to them. And yet the the message that we're getting about social distancing and in some cases even more aggressive measures um, that are being introduced or contemplated, uh, like the shelter-in-place directive for the Bay Area counties, leave all these questions unresolved about how we maintain those supplies. A lot of programs are shifting to giving as many supplies as possible to the people that they're seeing so that they don't have to come back as regularly to minimize the likelihood of contact and exposure. Uh, many programs are increasing their uh, cleaning and hygiene procedures in response. And I think the the part of this suggests to me a couple things. One is the relative frailty of our harm reduction system to our infrastructure to these kinds of shocks. That ideally, we would be talking about surge capacity right now. Um, whether that means going out and finding more people who may be disconnected from existing services, or whether that means saying that, hey, we've been operating for from two to five in the afternoon and we see about 300 people during those hours, let's spread it out and operate from 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. so that we have fewer people for every five-minute interval, so less opportunities for contact and exposure, but we're able to serve the same number or more people. So there's there's that question there. And then there's also this question, our programs have always operated under the veil of uh, trying to, to navigate the contradictory impulses of public health and criminalization. And that's led to some design choices that uh, certain services programs almost universally operate anonymously because we recognize that due to stigma and criminalization, people accessing these programs would be reluctant to obtain syringes from us if they had to provide their name and identifying detail. So people don't want to be tracked in that way, but that also means that in this moment, we're going to have a harder time staying in touch with these people, that we don't have phone trees, that we don't have everybody's number on WhatsApp. And what does it mean uh, for Sarah's post, uh, the situation for Iowa Harm Reduction Coalition, if people are moving further and further away and we haven't woven in the fabric of how to ensure that we're staying connected and we're helping make sure that people access their needs. And then the deal piece that you referenced from, from Sarah's tweets, people moving further outside into the woods, that we know our, our, my coworker, uh, Kristen Marshall from the Dope Project in San Francisco is talking about this, that in a paradoxical way, uh, that people who are living out on the streets, people who are in homeless encampments, that they experience a bit of a protective factor in terms of their overdose risk because of the likelihood that there's going to be somebody 
on hand to not only witness that overdose, but respond to it with naloxone. If people are being scattered, if people are no longer, you know, and we've seen this with, with people being pushed out of encampments with these cleanouts and stuff, but if people are being told to be more isolated and more remote, when they do overdose, there's less of a likelihood that there's going to be somebody to witness and respond to it in that moment. So these are the things that people who use drugs in the broader harm reduction community are grappling with right now. Yeah, and back to um, some of the the medication points, and this is like another sort of absurd uh, policy and and barrier that's being exposed through coronavirus is about uh, uh, mobile methadone delivery. So like since 2007, the FDA has refused to license any new methadone vans. And uh, I pointed this out just the other day because right now there is a, a like a comment period open to to change this rule to to undo this and and it just makes us wonder you know of course during a pandemic mobile delivery of medications would you know absolutely reduce people's exposure and it, it's like so I'm sitting here thinking like, yeah, why was there a ban on vans in the first place? And it goes back to something you said moments ago, how how diversion, even in the midst of this crisis, is still, you know, priority number one. And that trumps people's uh, patients and uh, health and, and their own interest as a patient. And so there's just all these ways in which this crisis is um, just, you know, putting a spotlight on, all, on the on not only um, how you know, our social safety net has so many people living on the edge and losing a service job could push them over. Or, you know, now with thinking about mobile methadone delivery, like, yeah, wouldn't that be amazing if people could could get this delivered to them so they don't have to, um, you know, wait in long lines and, and be exposed? Yeah, I'm, I think that this would be a great time for DEA to wave that magic wand and provide uh, emergency authorization, even in the midst of this comment period that it's taken them so many, too many years to get to. I also want to voice a concern that uh, that the issue that I think everybody talks about with COVID-19 is our healthcare system being overwhelmed, our emergency departments being filled up, our intensive care units, there not being enough beds, having to think about surge capacity, not being enough ventilators and all of that. And so part of that response has been this, this idea of isolation and quarantine and social distancing and flattening the curve, right? So that we don't see a huge spike in demand that our systems aren't able to meet. Uh, people point to the example of what's happening in, in Italy right now. Um, and another part of this has been guidance around uh, if you if you might have the flu, if you are coughing, if you've got headache, if you've got fever, then uh, limit your use of healthcare and self-manage at home um, unless, unless you are experiencing a medical emergency. And what we see is so many people with things like endocarditis, wound botulism, that a lot of this, the symptom pattern for COVID-19 overlaps with various kinds of infectious diseases, skin and soft tissue infections that people who use drugs are already susceptible to and are already experiencing, um, and in some cases can be life-threatening, uh, that 
people are already reluctant and hesitant to uh, access healthcare promptly because they've had so many negative experiences with stigma, with how they get treated. Um, and that we're sending these complicated messages right now and the overarching messaging for COVID-19 that may not relate to the lived and embodied experience of being a person who uses drugs, who, you know, we have anecdotal terms like cotton fever as a routine experience that, uh, that people go through. So how do we give good guidance to people so that they do you still have a pathway to understanding when it's necessary to access healthcare and what that experience is going to look like? Um, are they going to experience even more stigma from burnt out healthcare providers who are upset that people who use drugs are taking up resources that COVID-19 patients need to have? So I think that we're going to need to have more conversations because we've had this, this uh, almost kind of zone of exclusion that People who use drugs are somehow outside of what we think of as the general public or society. And it's we see how poorly that serves the public health of everybody. Uh, we're just still coming off of, or really in the middle of, a multi-state national outbreak of hepatitis A among people who use drugs and people experiencing homelessness. And while the roots of transmission are different, We've had thousands and thousands of cases in the majority of states, including several hundred deaths, and that that was not a sufficient wake-up call to say, hey, I think that we need to reorganize our approach to public health to prevent future incidents of rapid spread of infectious diseases, that, that if that's not sufficient is this going to be our moment? And I think that we have to be increasingly intentional, organized, and loud and persistent to say that this has to be a turning point for us, that we have to move the margins to the center, that we cannot have trickle-down public health preparedness, that only later will we start to think about people who use drugs, that this has to be an all-in approach. Absolutely, that's really well said. You know, things I think are going to be pretty fundamentally different when this whole thing, when the dust settles about everything. Um, and I think in the short term, hopefully it doesn't make the opioid crisis worse. Um, and But it can expose, you know, the failings of the public health system that I think disproportionately uh, impact people who use drugs. Um, and, and maybe it'll overall turn into some kind of improvement the post that you wrote you know i think that really has a lot of optimism it's a good reminder that um we're already going through um a lot of death and and sickness in our society and the <laughs> we can't really rely on the uh the structures of our government to fix these problems um in the in the short term we really need to rely on each other um and so there's three main themes that you landed on, that we are exquisitely skilled at navigating risk, uh, we have a strong ethic of redistributing resources, and we already know how to weave community. Um, if, for listeners, what do you want them to take away from this? Like, what what can they do to do to, to help their community and, and kind of like reminder that uh, that we've kind of been here before? Yeah, I, you know, I... I 
think that this is a good time for people to tap into their deeper sense of purpose and uh, stay attached to their community. Uh, so my point about, about uh, fine attunement to risk is that what we saw, for example, with HIV in the early days is that the messages from public health officials to people who use drugs were, you can get HIV from sharing needles, so don't share syringes. And we see this a lot with different kinds of health messaging from different kinds of sectors. We are assuming that your main concern is our main concern, and that's your top priority. And so you will rapidly internalize and absorb what's needed to avoid this risk because, of course, if, if you're made aware of a risk, then you will do everything in your power to avoid it. Um, and so that logic says that if we tell people not to share needles, then they or else they'll get HIV, then they will take that on without recognizing that people are making constant calculations about, well, I want to go to the program, but my cousin lives across the street and I don't want my cousin to see me getting syringes because uh, he'll tell his mother who will tell her sister and I will be thrown out of my house, right? Or I have to make the trade-off that I would like to return all my syringes to the program so they don't have them anymore, but I have to take a bus and then walk 10 minutes, and at any step of that way, I could be stopped by police, and I'm on parole right now, and I don't want to be arrested. And so that was what I meant in terms of calibrating risk, that we're going to have to make some choices around COVID-19 that require us not in a statistical or an epidemiological way, but in a much more material and embodied way to think about the various domains of risks that people are navigating right now that are pulling them in different directions and recognize that total risk avoidance um, is not going to be the option for our people. And so how do we help them tease out and surface what the most salient risks are and navigate them? And this is true for people who are running student services programs, overdose educational oxygen distribution programs too. Are we in a moment where we're trying to aim for total avoidance of COVID-19 exposure, contact, transmission, or are we balancing those risks against other things? And what does our harm reduction compass tell us? Um, the same with redistributing resources, that we we have an enormous uh, wealth of experience about being creative, resourceful, resilient in doing that, and that that body of experience is something that we should lean against, um, as well as our gift for weaving community, that this is a moment where even as we're hearing all these messages of isolation, we need to amplify creative means for connection. And I think that I often find myself, uh, when talking about the advantages and benefits of harm reduction programs, emphasizing that it's not just about the supplies. Obviously, the supplies here, the life-saving, health-preserving supplies are going to be essential, but those forms of connection are just as meaningful. And I think in addition to the impact on the overdose curve, we need to think about the mental health, the emotional health, the spiritual health of the people who are no longer gonna be able to access that drop-in center where they were able to find for a few moments a network of peers and leave the stigma and the shame that they carry with them 
outside for at least an hour or two while they're getting a coffee and, and chatting with people. What do we do in the meantime? Not everybody has smartphones, not everybody has internet, not any, everybody has electricity. So I think that's going to take a new level of creativity for us to tap into. But the piece that I'm encouraged by is that through the last 30 years, with every new challenge, whether it's fentanyl, whether it's hepatitis C, whether it's HIV, the harm reduction community has rolled up its sleeves and stepped up and come up with brilliant ideas that people had not thought of before. Um, and that's the wellspring that we can tap into now in this moment. Yeah, you covered so many important things in, in your post about this. And one portion that I want to read uh, out loud for, for people listening uh, that I think is really important to keep in mind is that, quote, over the last three decades, we have shifted hundreds of millions of syringes, millions of doses of naloxone, tens of thousands of fentanyl test strips, and countless other supplies to people in need. We share our food and water, hygiene supplies, socks and warm clothing, physical and virtual spaces. And you go on to write how you've basically done all this on, you know, shoestring budgets and routing around laws and regulations if, if you need to, to, you know, deliver the things that people need because, sadly, our public health system in this country won't do it. And if you guys aren't doing it, then then no one else will. And I just think that, uh, yeah, that part really stuck out to me just to think about that all of that shifting of resources in in the circumstances you have and yeah how that really i think uh, applies to the coronavirus where you know I, I look at what south korea is doing where they have this drive through testing and people can get tested not leave their car and the next day get a te a text message basically about whether they're positive or not and you know like I'm trying to picture that happening in this country and I for the life of me I, I cannot see us ever doing anything that that effective and efficient yeah I, I mean I think the the testing piece is so salient to how the the various tropes of, of how we're talking about and experiencing this uh not just in comparison to a place like south korea but in comparison to i think other frames of reference that people have for concerns about exposure and it leads into this dominant kind of big mood of of uh epistemological fracture where it's unknowable whether or not any particular person unless maybe you're Tom Hanks, or you're on the Utah Jazz, or you're Idris Elba, or unless you have some kind of special access, that we are being told that that unless and until you get really sick, it's unknowable whether or not you've already been exposed, whether you currently have it, whether you've recovered from it, whether you may have developed an immunity to it, whether you can transmit it. So that the epistemological fracture, most of us, millions, hundreds of millions of us are in the state of not knowing. We also don't know uh, what the course of this will be. Are we talking about two weeks, four weeks, eight weeks, four months, a longer course of the state of not being normal, this, uh, this state of having to take these advanced and extreme precautions? We don't know 
where the curve is going to take us. So I think that that not knowing piece is not entirely new, but it feels not only uh, more intense for this pandemic, but also much more inflected by uh, the fracture and breakdowns of uh, the different kinds of realities that people in this country are operating in in a, in a kind of partisan way, that people don't believe news sources, that people don't trust authorities, that people decry uh, things as fake news, that there's a partisan divide in terms of how seriously Democrats versus Republicans are taking this, that there's conspiracy theories circulating, all of that stuff. And I think that that, that to me, um, as much as anything else, means that if we cannot retreat to that deeper sense of purpose and shared values that our communities have woven together. Things like mutual aid that are practiced by by many people in uh, social justice spaces, then we are going to be at sea here. So this is a time to keep pulling together and reminding ourselves of the values that are going to help us navigate this space. Yeah, I think that was beautifully said and is a really good point to end this on. And I think, um, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty out there. It's very uncomfortable to to live that and to feel that and even, you know, materially uncertainty about we don't even know the denominator of positive cases out there or in the sense of where if you're living paycheck to paycheck, how you're going to make rent this month. There's so much uncertainty out there. And uh, Daniel, thanks so much for sort of coming on and reminding us all to sort of dig deep into ourselves and and ask, you know, what what can we do and how can we step up and how can we lean into the the wisdom of harm reduction and the uh, wonderful community that uh, that is engaged in it. And um, yeah. Thanks, Zach and Troy. And if I can just make a plug, uh, we've got some materials on our website, uh, some initial guidance that our colleagues, uh, Christine Rodriguez from Higher Ground Harm Reduction and Andrew Reynolds developed with support from Vital Strategies. And we'll continue to update those as more information becomes available. Uh, we also have some information on our website. We're going to do virtual office hours uh, starting tomorrow, Wednesday afternoon, where people can register and call or video conference in, where we're going to be sorting through the different kinds of questions that people working in harm reduction have, uh, both practical questions for the people that they're serving, but also uh, programmatic questions about uh, the best ways to maintain operations. Um, and if you... Follow us uh, through email or on social media as we have more information, as you have more questions. We're going to continue to update these, and we're really interested in playing a role in helping the broader harm reduction community navigate this. Yeah, we'll definitely be posting links to a lot of, a lot of that stuff. Thank you, Daniel. It's uh, really good to have you on. Thanks so much, Troy. Thanks, Zach. Always great talking. Thanks for listening to Narcotica. You can follow us on Twitter at Narcocast or also on other social medias like Facebook and YouTube. Narcotica is an independent production by Christopher Moraff, Zachary Siegel, and Troy Farah. Our theme music is by Glassboy. 
and additional music is by Pictures of the Floating World. This show is ad-free, but that means that we are reliant on donations from our audience members, so a big shout-out and thank you to our Patreon subscribers. Your contributions help keep this show free from corporate influence. Spread the word. We're on Spotify, Stitcher, iTunes, you name it. I hope you guys enjoyed the more rough episode this time around. Like Troy said, we wanted to get this episode out as soon as possible. The next episode will be back to normal, I promise. Stay safe, guys. Have a nice night.